0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 4, and uh, we're going to start in verse 12 together. Uh, As you know, we are continuing in our series, it's called Refined. And we've been studying through the whole book of 1 Peter, verse by verse. Uh, Peter wrote this letter, uh, he told us in the beginning, to all the churches and Christians uh, throughout Asia Minor. And so that might not mean anything to you. If you look at the maps section of your Bible, you'll see it there. It's modern-day Turkey. So there's a bunch of churches there and believers. He was writing to everybody in that region. So this was more of a, a cyclical letter. It was meant to go to various churches so just kind of widespread direction here for all believers. It wasn't, not that the book of Romans that was written to the Roman church isn't the same in, in the way that it was expected it would continue to be circulated, and the, the uh, principles given in those books are for all of us, but uh, he, he very clearly wrote to just a wide audience of all who had put their trust and faith in Jesus. Uh, the most prominent theme of this book is that suffering, difficulty, and struggle will be a part Of the life of every person who follows Jesus. And that might not seem like a big, yippee headline, but it is if you follow uh, through with all of the implications of that. We we need to know that struggle is a part of the life of every person that follows Jesus. Uh, And we have been called continually, and we will be again today, to see this reality that struggle and trial is a part of following Jesus as a reason for hope and joy instead of a reason for doubt and despair. That's Peter's big idea. There is going to be suffering, trial, and difficulty as you follow after the Lord Jesus. You're following a guy that got crucified. So, I mean, right, here's your sign. Um, It didn't go real good for him in in a temporal sense, but um, our victory is as sure as his was, and uh, we think about eternity. And so we have reason for hope because of Jesus, and that's basically much of what this book says over and over again. Uh, and there's, there's two ways to see the relatively repetitive pattern of this book. If you've been tracking with us, Peter's said four or five different ways. It's going to be hard. Look to Jesus, right? He just keeps saying it different ways from different angles, using different examples. But it's the same overall premise, man. You're going to have difficulty. So did Jesus. Trust him. This is, this is again and again what he's saying. Uh, But we can do two things with that. We could take the typical approach that we've been trained to and uh, scorn the repetition in favor of something new. Most of us, if we're self-aware, we know we've been raised in a culture and a time where people, uh, politicians, companies, uh, they're constantly trying to find some new way to grab our attention and to cater to our belief that we need new information or a new experience all the time. That's what I need. I need something new to stimulate me. Uh, What this causes for us is for us to have a tendency to devalue truths and principles we think we've already heard. Uh, Can anybody be honest and say they've been at least tempted to check out if they're, say, listening to a sermon or even uh, you're learning in some other way and you're like, oh, I've heard that idea before or that concept. And you're kind of like, okay, I've already got that. We don't value repetition. We, we like new frontiers and we're, you know, America, right? We, we came over, started on the east side, got all the way to the west side, conquered this thing. And so that's, that's kind of in us. Um, but there's a value to repetition. There's a point. Uh, the, the, the second approach we could have would be to humbly ask some questions. For example, um, why would the guy who Jesus handpicked and personally trained to lead the men who would in turn lead the entire early church, keep saying the same thing in different ways. Is it that this guy was not trained properly? Is he just not know what else to say? Or is it maybe intentional that this guy, Jesus, hand-trained, hand-picked, keeps saying over and over again, you're going to struggle, there's going to be difficulty, look to Jesus. Right? Peter was there right next to the master. As he preached hope to the hopeless, as he healed the blind, and even as he ascended in glory, back to the Father. Why would a guy who walked that closely with Jesus focus almost his entire letter on encouraging believers to anticipate trials and then teaching us how to respond? These are good, humble questions. Instead of saying, wow, Peter seems like a one-trick pony and he only has one thing to say, instead of making that assumption, maybe maybe we should wonder, this guy that (laughs) was The handpicked leader of Jesus spent three years with him watching the miracles, was brought into every setting where where Jesus whittled down and said, okay, I'm only taking a couple of you in here to see me raise this girl from the dead, or only a couple of you get to come up on the mountain, see me transfigured in glory. Uh, He was in that mix every time. Very close proximity to Jesus. Why is this the thing, when this guy's writing broadly to the church, how he wants to challenge and encourage us? Probably because it's important, right? The answer is it must be important to understand these things, and it is. Yet it is also difficult to stand steadfast and believe what this says when we are faced with the troubles that are described. It's difficult. The challenges and encouragements that we've been given and that we will be given tonight are things we will have to be reminded of for our whole lives. There are some things that just because one time I grabbed that by faith and really believe it doesn't mean that I'm going to then be able to apply it for the rest of my life without having to almost reapproach that thing by faith and, and stir my belief in it again. For sometimes faith and vision and trust in God is like it, it's like water in a bucket with a hole in it, man. And sometimes we we need to be stirred back up by the truth of God's word. Sometimes we need to bring these truths back to the Lord and ask Him to replant them in our hearts. Because the reality is, man. We, I, I am hoping we all leave here today very solidly decided that suffering in the name of Christ is a right and holy thing and that he will be with us in the midst of it. That's going to be the overall premise. I hope we walk out of here with spines like steel, galvanized, ready to take on whatever will come. But I'm also aware that as time goes on, we all have a tendency for that that steel spine that was galvanized and ready to go to turn into something kind of like jelly, right? And so we need continually to stay connected to God's spirit, reliant upon him, continually revisit these things. Uh, You're not just going to probably decide once, I believe that and that be enough. I think that's evidenced in the fact that Peter spends three-fourths of this book, a little more than that actually, saying over and over again in different ways what he's saying. Um, I think a good question to ask ourselves before we read these verses is this. Do I really believe I need Jesus to help me make it through this life? Do I really believe I need Jesus' help? I think that's a good question. And I don't just mean in a, like, I know the answer is yes way. Like, I know who I'm dealing with here. You guys are pretty smart. Sharp crowd. And so you know the right answer is I need Jesus. But I'm talking about in a real deal way. Like, do you believe you can handle most of the difficulty of life and you only need the Lord's help when it gets really bad? We're like, do you actually really understand that on a minute by minute basis, if you really read the Bible and what it calls us to as followers of Christ, do you really realize how desperately you need the help of the Lord Jesus every minute of every day? How much of the lie of self reliance has been able to creep into the way that you see the world and the way you see yourself? We're going to get help with that today by the glory of God. It's going to be encouraging, it's not going to beat us down. I'm thankful. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 12 and go to verse 19, okay? It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. A bunch of translations say trial. I almost read it wrong. It says, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. But it's to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Praise God for his word. All right. This is going to be fun. That might not have sounded like it, but it is. Okay, so let's start back in verse 12. Uh, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. John Wesley and a few others think that what this is referencing is people literally being burned at the stake. This, was, this is historically recorded. It was happening in this time period. Uh, this may be much of the answer to the question of why Peter is so focused on this idea. A lot of this type of real deal, to the death, martyr type persecution was going on. Uh, probably under the reign of Nero, a Roman emperor that really hated Christians at that point. And so uh, this is like an unveiled reference to the fact that this fiery ordeal is you are at risk of and you may have friends that have already literally been burned at the stake because you wouldn't deny Christ. Okay, so that brings up some questions for us. I I think we know that persecution was more intense in some ways in, in those times and It's more intense than most of us would probably experience. I don't think most of you in your daily life are at risk of being shot, stabbed, crucified, or burned because you followed Jesus. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think for most of us that's the situation we're in right now today. And I'm talking about right here in our local context. I realize there are people around the world today that this is their reality. So there is no difficulty for them in relating to what it says in 1 Peter 4 uh, verse 12. I think maybe, though, for us it can be. Uh, so, how do we relate to these kind of instructions? Does this even apply to us? He's talking about this fire ordeal. Okay, we're not. Our lives are probably not in danger this moment because we're followers of Christ. So, how do we interpret this? How do we deal with this? Is there any persecution uh, that we deal with? I think you know. First of all, we need to be careful. We don't want to cry wolf. I think there's people that sometimes. Um, they have a, like a perennial victim mentality, and so they're always thinking somebody's trying to oppress them, and so there, there are Christians that are that way, and they're, I think a lot of times it's, it's unhelpful. Um, it, it doesn't look very much like building bridges. It looks like knocking them down, so we've got to be careful of that. But the reality is, if you're going to serve Christ in any kind of vibrant way in the time and place that we are, you're probably going to run into some opposition, um, I I talked to a a precious friend of mine this week that uh, she is pregnant, and so she also is um, a part of a school that is kind of, it's along artistic lines and um, design and things like that, and so there's this this project in the class where you get coupled with another person um, kind of as a team deal, and so the project is she's designing some stuff for her baby, and her baby is a girl, and uh, so she's designing this stuff, drawing out clothes, and you know, so the, the design stuff has got, there's little bows in, in the girl's hair, and uh, the, the clothes are very feminine, and the you know, dresses and things of that nature. And the partner that she was partnered with um, pretty much comes at her full force with, why are you doing that? You, you can't determine the gender of that baby that baby gets to determine its gender. Don't And it keeps trying to tell her how to change the clothes so that it, it looks more neutral so that uh, she's not forcing um, a gender upon the child. And so uh, she, by the power of the Spirit, figured out how to say, you know what, um, I see where you're coming from, but I believe this baby's a girl, and so these are some things that were important to me when I was a little girl, and this is what I liked, and so I'm just going to, go for it this way. She didn't uh, get into a big clash, but I think you can see the simple idea that we believe the Bible says that God made them male and female, that God has something to do with the design of the human body, and that there are distinctions in gender. We've spent a lot of time here, and if you go back, even in this series, uh, in 1 Peter 3, we've talked about the fact that Both male and female are equal uh, in value and worth, dignity, because they're both made in the image of God. We are joint heirs with Christ uh, of the grace and and salvation that comes through him alone. And so um, we don't believe that uh, one gender is above the other by any means. Uh, We believe we're sons and daughters of God. We do believe that there are distinctions, that there are girls and there are boys. And so um, this this dear sister is put in this situation where it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think we tend to make assumptions and it makes us look dumb and it really hurts us in trying to reach people because we make assumptions that people that don't believe in God are amoral. We tend to just imagine them as um, like they have no morality. They're just, they're all hedonists and and all only pursuing like self-pleasure. And the reality is, Uh, There are many people that don't believe in God that are legalists. They actually have a very strict moral code. It's just different than the moral code that's been revealed by our God. And and what what else is interesting, if you really think about it, what everybody's after, whether they're a believer in God or not, is freedom. Really, we all want to be free. We just have different definitions of what freedom is, and we have different paths that we believe will get you there. For the person that doesn't believe in God and, and would say, tell somebody that they're morally wrong for designing a dress for their daughter that's about to be born, a person that says that, their path to freedom is, is viewed only through the lens of autonomy. What does that mean? That means it's the, same, it's the same problem we see in the garden. Satan says, you won't die if you eat that. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Our problem has always been a prideful pursuit of trying to figure out some way to freedom outside of the God that made us. And so for that person, taking all the boundaries away, making everything self-determined, all the way down to, what gender do I feel like I am today? And listen, we need to be sensitive about these things. We need to be gentle in the way we talk about them. There are people that genuinely struggle with issues of identity, and we should be, we absolutely have to lead with love and compassion when it comes to those things, be willing to have conversations. That's absolutely the right approach to that. However, we do need to also recognize and we need to ask them for the same grace if we want to design a dress for a little girl because we believe she's a little girl. Can you say amen to that? Okay, and, and, and so what I'm asking for when, when I'm having a conversation with somebody that believes that way. I'm, I want to respect the fact that you have a, a worldview and a lens and a way that you're seeing things, and if we can have a respectful dialogue that allows me to say, hey, this is the way I see it, and we can meet in the middle somewhere and, and exchange ideas, that's great. If you're not willing to do that, then let's just stop it here, because I don't want to get into a battle of me trying to disrespect you and vice versa, because we're not doing anything that's fruitful at that point. So uh, the, the reality is, we see freedom differently. We're, we're pursuing freedom as well, but instead of through autonomy, we see freedom coming through surrender. Uh, the only way we really believe we can be free is to submit and surrender to the creator that made us and do the thing he made us to do. Um, I know it's cliche, and I've said it too many times, but uh, a fish that wants to be a bird is having a really hard day. Uh, It's just not going to go well. It's going to be frustrating, and that fish is going to be aggravated. uh, And and flip that around, a bird that wants to be a fish, right? You're not doing what you were made to do, and so you're going to be frustrated, you're going to be confused, and um, you're going to be exhausted. And uh, I think we see that oftentimes. Um, But we need to be more thoughtful, friends, and we need to understand that those that don't believe in God, especially today, I would say more so than not, they have a moral code. And to some degree, they might be stricter to their moral code than you are. And and we, we need to be slow with our assumptions, and that's why it's never helpful and never fruitful for us to make big blanket statements about people, because they're never true. People are different, people are unique. That's true within the body of Christ and out. And so people's struggles and, and all of that is unique. And that's why, typically, the most effective way we're going to have to try to reach in and have gospel influence with somebody is to take the time to get to know them. You've got to know them. Because if you don't know them, you're going to have a can of answers that you pull out and bazooka at people. And it may not even apply. <laughs> To where they're coming from and what they're struggling with, and so you got to take time and you got to invest. That's not to mean that God never orchestrates supernatural. You know, uh, what's it called when two things pass? Intersection. That's what a. There was a different word and it wasn't the right one. So intersections. God sometimes brings together divine intersections, and I've met people in the street before that have impacted my life, and I know vice versa that I, and we just met, and so God does that, but. A normative pattern, and I would just submit to you, maybe especially in the time and place that we live, um, we can't run around just throwing blanket statements. Uh, We need to take the time to invest relationally so that we can really meet people where they're at Uh, and love them, actually love them. You should not attempt to speak truth into any situation or to any person. Let me just say this very plainly. If you don't hear anything else today, hear this right here. Don't ever try to speak truth to somebody unless you love them first. If you don't love them first, then just shut up, because anything you say is going to destroy instead of help, because the motive's not right. That's why Jesus said first, love me and love people, then go make disciples. Because you start trying to make disciples, you start trying to share your opinion, and your motive isn't that you love that person, you want them to experience the true freedom that comes in being connected to the God that made them. If it's not love that's motivating you, really, and I don't mean lip service, I mean, we've taken some time to really check and have the Holy Spirit help us see what's going on on the inside. Don't try to to share truth. Don't ever try to divorce truth and love. They always have to go together, and love goes first. Is that okay? Okay. Amen. It didn't matter what your answer was. I just wanted to give you a chance to feel involved, so (laughs) there you go. Amen. Amen. Verses 13 through 16. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Really, guys, if we're honest, this sounds so alien and opposite to what most of us would deem as fair, and that's something that I think Peter brings a full frontal assault against in this entire book is, is our sensibility about what is fair, and this is repetitive for me. I've said this in weeks past, but I'm just rolling with Peter, so don't get mad at me. I have other things to say, too. I'm just sticking to the text. Here he is again telling us, don't, don't suffer because you've done something stupid, right? And, and earlier in the, t- in the text... In an earlier chapter, he essentially said the same thing and gives this idea that you know everybody, everybody understands that you're going to suffer if you, if, if you steal, or what's the examples he gives here, right? If you are running around meddling in other people's business and making trouble, whatever it is, that's going to bring suffering. And we need to make sure we check our thinking on that. When he says don't suffer for those things, I think a lot of, it's very hard for us to, I'm going to say more about this later, but I'll just leave it at this. It's very hard for us to understand that God is sovereign and yet see that sometimes when we do things that are disobedient to his word, there are consequences, but it, it doesn't require some act from him for there to be consequences. Like, if, does God need to sovereignly intervene? Like, if you punch yourself in the face as hard as you can right now, don't do it. But if you did that, does God need to sovereignly intervene for that to hurt? Or is it just going to hurt? Because, like, built into the laws of the way things work is if you punch yourself in the face as hard as you can, it's going to hurt. Right? Well, if you meddle in other people's business and, and you're a busybody, it's gonna, that's going to cause pain and issues and trouble. God doesn't have to make a consequence happen, it just, it just does, right? Um, same kind of deal. If you murder somebody, there's going to be consequences. If you steal, there's going to be consequences. Um, it's not like this continual need for God to keep pouring out punishment. He already poured out punishment on Christ. Um, but you can still suffer as a result of your choices. I, I hope that makes sense. It's, it, it really matters um, how we understand that. So, But the, the truth is, this doesn't seem fair to us. Because what he's saying is, rejoice when you suffer for Christ, for doing right. Then he says, don't suffer for being a doofus, essentially. Then he says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And so again, we're being encouraged to this idea that to suffer for doing what's right, to suffer for following Christ, to suffer for refusing to kind of fall in line with what everyone else is doing uh, around us. Um, what the rest of the world, you know, the Bible says that there's going to come a time when people are going to celebrate what God says is evil and say that's good. Uh, and he says that's going to be a difficult time for his people. And um, I, I think to some degree that's always gone on, but definitely that's going on now. You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of things that God has said that's not good and that's going to lead to pain. And there's people right now going, yay, pop confetti on that one because that's good and that's fun and that's actually that's moral. That's of, of high moral fiber when you do these things or, you know, espouse that these things should be the way it is. Very confusing uh, and difficult. However, um, the Lord's promised to be with us. And that's essentially the hope we're going to be pushed to uh, and have been pushed to through this high, entire sermon series. I'm thankful because it's the only real good answer <laughs> uh, if you really think about it. So... Um, In looking for a way to illustrate this idea, you know, preachers are always supposed to have illustrations, I I just couldn't, I I thought of some other things, I'm like, man, I couldn't find a better example than from Peter's own life. So, you're not getting an extra illustration here, I'm literally just going to read you an account of something that happened to Peter, recorded in the book of Acts, and and this helps to some degree, because I think it's easy for us to think, okay, this is Peter, Uh, he rolled with Jesus, and he's saying all this stuff, and it's like easy for him to say, but, you know, it's easier said than done type of thing right we can sometimes that can be our pushback and justification to not really engaging with the idea that if i suffer for the name of christ the proper response is to rejoice does it, can can we at least be honest and say that doesn't seem right like that doesn't maybe if you've thought about this a lot it does but like initial natural reaction to you're suffering for doing what's right and, and like the real response that comes out of your heart is to be thankful and to worship the Lord. That, that takes a work of the Spirit. That's part of why I asked you at the beginning of this service, how much do you really believe you think you need Jesus? Because just because you manage on an average day to be relatively moral doesn't mean you've figured out how to live life without Christ. Because I'm just telling you right now, I'm very confident, without the help of the Spirit of God, when you're being persecuted and suffering trial and difficulty as a result of the fact that you will not refuse the name of Christ, it's going to take the help of the Spirit for you to rejoice in the middle of that and say, I'm thankful that I get to suffer for this great of a name. Is Is that possible? Could that happen? Is that real? Let me read you a section of Acts. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 42. Happens to be one of my favorite sections of the scriptures. I know I say that a lot. I really mean it. Uh, it says when they had brought them, so this is some Sadducees, some religious officials, some guys with some power. Um, they they grab a hold of a couple of uh, apostles here, one being Peter. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, "We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us." I'm going to read quite a bit, so if unless you're real good at turning and following, just just listen and kind of put yourself emotionally in this place with Peter. Okay, so they've called him in. They said, we told you to quit talking about Jesus. Here's Peter's response. You ready for this? But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Boo! Mic drop, right? So simple. He keeps going, though. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. You guys did it. He's not playing games. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel A teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. He said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. So, in this present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. Gamaliel was on the wrong side, in my view, but still a smart guy. Some good advice. You understand what happened there? Everyone else wants to kill him. Gamaliel stands up and says, Boys, are you sure? Because the, the way this supposedly dumb fisherman is talking, it doesn't seem like he's on his own here. Gamaliel noticed something. He told everyone to chill out. Smart guy. So they took his advice. After calling the apostles in, they flogged them, uh, beat them in a humiliating way in front of everybody, and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then release them. Is that the end of the story? You guys been to Acts 5 before? So good. Here it goes. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, how many times a week? Every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So when Peter later, many years later, writes this letter to encourage Christians suffering under the oppression of people that want to kill them as a result of their belief in Christ. He is not just talking out of two sides of his mouth because he has been there, and not only did he suffer, but he also walked out of there dancing, singing, praising in the streets that he was counted worthy. This was his mentality. You can judge whether this is right or wrong. His mentality was, I just got to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. Christ. And I'm thrilled about it. Dear friend, I don't know how you come to any conclusion other than that is the right Holy Spirit-filled response to that kind of situation. Now, are you going to be drugged in front of a a group full of guys wearing robes and tall hats and get beat in front of everybody? Probably not. But you might get passed up for promotions at your job. You might be ridiculed at your school. You might have uh, friends family that won't have nothing to do with you because you refuse to back away from this beautiful truth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one that God has raised up as the prince of salvation and you're going to live in light of that. You may suffer. There may be trials. You may see a clear path towards easier money but it means disobeying the Lord to do it and you may have to take a harder path clearly more difficult and arduous but in order to keep integrity in order to obey the Lord. And in the midst of doing that, you, it's not enough for us to say, fine, I know the right answer. Ugh, this is hard, I don't wanna do it. Peter is calling us to, and this is again, let me ask you the question again: do you need Jesus' help? Do you need the Lord's help ever? like every minute, because not only do we get, can we make the right decision, we're supposed to make that right decision that's harder and have our hands in the air on the way, praising God for the chance to suffer and have difficulty for the sake of the name of Christ. Are you going to need the Holy Spirit's help to have that attitude? Or is everybody I'm looking at right now just got the perfect Christian, beautiful attitude in every situation all the time? Because if that's you, please write a book. I want to know all 10 tips, tricks, and secrets to be like that without the Holy Ghost. I don't think you're going to. Amen. I hope this is helping you. It's helping me. Verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The judgment that is spoken of here is agreed upon by every single scholar I found. It is rare for me to find something that I can't find someone that disagrees. I can't find anybody that disagrees on this point. That the judgment here is referencing not final judgment, but a refining judgment. Uh, This would align also with Peter calling them fiery trials or fiery ordeals. Uh, there's this whole idea of trial by fire and kind of all of the implication of that. And it's, it's woven into the analogy of what he's saying here. Uh, and this, that ties into ways God has described himself throughout the scriptures. Uh, in Malachi chapter 3 verse 2, God refers to himself as a refiner's fire. Let me read that to you. This is Malachi chapter 3 verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver. And so what's being said here is this this judgment to begin with the household of God, it's a a refining judgment. It's it's part of this process that we are being told over and over again is much like fire, much like heat being put to a precious metal. It's very interesting that God refers to himself essentially as a silversmith in Malachi. Uh, Some of you will have heard this before, but I, I, I can't... I can't pass this almost direct reference to it without saying this to you because it's important for us to see the continuity of what God has said about himself and what he's doing with us. And him referring to himself as a silversmith, uh, if, if, you, if you understand how a silversmith purifies silver, which is essentially what's being done here, this is what the judgment is for, it's, it's, it's purifying us, it's, it's uh, conforming us more and more into the image of Christ. When a silversmith puts that silver into the crucible and they heat it up, so the way that works is it gets everything hot enough that the the silver is now not a solid, it's a liquid. And so now the impurities can rise up through that silver up to the top, and then you keep increasing the heat to the point where the impurities literally burn away. They're gone, and then you get to a point where what is left is just that pure kind of molten silver. And it's interesting that when a silversmith is purifying silver, uh, if they're doing it by hand, Uh, I'm I'm sure there's machines now that can calculate this to some degree of accuracy, but um, when when guys would just heat up a crucible and they would be looking at that and trying to determine whether that silver had really been purified, all the impurities had come up out of it. What they're looking for is when that molten silver gets to the point where they can see their own reflection in it, that's when they know the silver has been purified to the point where it can now be poured, cooled, and turned into jewelry. Anybody connect the dots? You want me to do it for you? Let's just do it anyways. Friends, that's what the Lord's doing with you. That's what Romans 8 says. He's conforming us into his image. He's doing that very thing. He's heating you up. I know there's stuff in life that's hard right now, and it feels hot, and there's pressure, and it's difficult, and you don't like it. But friend, if you can just cling to this one beautiful promise, he's doing something with you. This silversmith that he's promised to be, he's standing there staring at you. He's watching the process. He knows what's going on. He sees what's being removed from you that's actually to your detriment. You might not see it, friend. You might not even know it's there. You might not know all of what he's doing inside of you and around you, in you and through you. You can probably not see it because you're not him. You're just some silver in a crucible, but the silversmith sees. Your God sees. And he's in the process and he's there with you and he's not abandoned you and he's working on you and he's doing something with you. He's got a plan. And so when you can't see and when you're agitated and it feels hot and you want to quit, just remember he loves you. He's doing something with you. He's not gonna give up. And so don't you. Stay in there. You're gonna need his grace to do it. You're gonna need his help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to do any of this. Come anywhere close to it. This this truth that God is, the judgment should begin with the household of God. This refining process that it's, it's dealing with us first. Don't fall. Uh, you, you guys ever, like, when you trip in public, do you just hope someone didn't see it? Is that, like, your first reaction? Look around. Oh, cool, I made it. You, that hope is gone when you're preaching, right? Because everybody's looking. So it's better just acknowledge, yes, I tripped, and then keep moving. Okay. Because then you have to try to not laugh for, like, two minutes, and you ain't hearing nothing when that's going on, right? So, all right, It happened. Here we go. <laughs> this, this, this idea of what God is doing in refining us through this process of judgment um, and dealing with us through trial and, and for our testing. Uh, let me just mention this so I don't, I don't forget. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. For your testing. Here's my question. Do we believe, right, that God is omniscient, So that means he's all-knowing. Is that right or wrong? That's right. I didn't give you a chance to answer because I didn't want you to answer wrong. We believe God's omniscient. Okay, He is all-knowing. And so he knows absolutely everything that's going on inside of you. He can see down to the deepest depths of your heart. He knows what's going on in you better than you do. He knows the state of your soul, where your faith is at, what's going on, all that. And so if there's a test, a trial by fire that is a test, who needs to see the results? Is God testing you because he needs to find, okay, how is this guy doing? Let's run him through some difficulty so I can see how he responds. He already knows how you're going to respond. He already knows what's going on. So who, who, friend, is the results of the testing for? Who's trying to get encouraged? Who's God trying to help? Who's God trying to show that maybe one time what you were made of was hay and stubble, that if I would have thrown it in this fire, it would have burned up. And meant nothing. But I've done something in you and I've made you something precious. Let me show you. Let's put some heat on this. Let me show you what happens when you cling to me and you trust me and you come through on the other side of this thing. The testing is not so that God knows whether or not your quality is up to par. It's so that you can see he's done something precious in you that he's faithful and he's not going to fail you. These hearts aren't, aren't just hay and stubble anymore. God, the, the lives that we have are a gift from God, and, and, and he has made us into something precious that, that can take this kind of heat, stay faithful by his grace and through the power of his spirit. And you're the one that gets the most encouragement when you walk through that process and, and, and come out the other side. Um, God didn't need to be encouraged by it. He knew what was going to go on. So it, it's not a test for him, it's a test for us. We're the one that need to see those results. And so, does that help you see the trial as as an act of love? It's not God bored and like, "Ah, I'm going to mess with my kids a little bit and see see how it goes. You know what I mean? Like, no, he's got plenty going on. (laughs) He's not bored. It's very intentional. And he's doing that with you because it's for your good. Trial, difficulty, suffering is a necessary part of the overall mission of conforming us into his image. We will not be like him unless we learn to trust him through difficulty. It's a loving act of a really, really good father. We should be encouraged by this in at least a few ways. Um, I alluded to this earlier, but I'll, I'm going to say it plainly. The judgment upon the household of God, these, these these trials and this refining process, the judgment upon the household of God is not to punish us, it's to purify us. It's not to punish us, it's to purify us. I told you earlier, it's it's... It's very important to understand this distinction. Here's why. If you believe difficulty in, in, in your life right now, trials that are a result of, and, and, and let's be honest, sometimes we're not very good at understanding the source of difficulties and, and trials. We can sometimes suffer because we have ran our mouths or we have made bad choices. And a lot of times we, we're blind to that and we think, oh, well, just I'm unfairly suffering. And so this is another place we need the Holy Spirit's help to have discernment to understand the source. But that's why I said to you earlier, punch yourself in the face, it's going to hurt. God doesn't need to come sovereignly make that happen. There's already a connection. I need you to understand this truth. God has already punished Christ for your sin. And so all of you that are running around believing right now that some difficulty in your life is a result of God punishing you for sin, you've believed a lie. Do you understand why that's important? Because this is going to really affect the way you relate to God. Some of you are struggling with it right now. You forget I can see your faces. You don't like this. Some of you really like your sensibility towards fairness is if I disobey God, I deserve punishment. And you like you you almost you're scared of the if I what if I believe that? Then what what's that going to do? Well, if if you really believe it, what it's going to do is make you obey him more because you're going to realize how incredibly gracious, merciful, and perfect he is. It's not going to have the opposite effect of if you really believe what I'm saying to you, that any of these trials and difficulties are not God punishing you, but, but purifying you, Jesus already absorbed all punishment necessary. If God punished Jesus for the sins of the world, how would it be fair then for him to be punishing you now? Is that right or wrong? That's right. Now, remember, I already told you this. I can, I can tell the gears are turning. Does this mean you'll never have consequences in your life as a result of sin? No, because some consequences are automatic. Punch yourself in the face, it hurts, right? But what you do need to realize is if if something happens... So here's where this gets... Let me just make it real for a second. So if somebody has a child that dies young, okay, here comes Satan and idiots. Satan and human idiots will come to that person and, and like Job's friends and start saying, well... I don't know, maybe you didn't have enough faith, or maybe do you have some secret sin in your life? Is that maybe why this happened? The answer to that is no, under every and any circumstance. God is not going to punish now as a result of sin like that. If If there is difficulty and there is suffering in the life of a Christian, it comes from one of two sources, either... We've done something dumb, and there's an automatic causation tied to that. I'm speeding. I got a ticket. Or, if there's difficulty, it's going to be, I guess there's an onslaught potentially of the enemy as well. Thankfully, God's promised to be with us in that. That can't really touch us. Ultimately, if, uh, if, if we're willing to cling to the, the promises we have here, uh, Satan and his cohorts have one option. That's to lie. Most of the time when there's consequences as a result of the forces of darkness, they can't really come directly do stuff to you, so they come around the other way and convince you to do dumb stuff that then leads to bad consequences. That's normally how that works. So really those go in the same slot. Sometimes God will allow difficulty to come as a result of a loving desire to put you in that crucible, to purify you, and to make you more like him. That is for your good. It's a loving act. But God is not, through this judgment upon the household of of God that is spoken of here, he's not punishing, He's purifying. And that that there's a really big difference there. If you're like, I don't know, it sounds like you're splitting hairs, I'd really like to talk to you about it because it matters so much. If, if you're not catching why that matters, let's talk about it because it's it's real crucial. Um, so that's one way that this should encourage us. The second is that this should help us to actually rejoice in the midst of trials, Knowing, knowing then that they are a necessary part of how we are conformed into the image of Christ. This should help us to believe that God is not mean or hateful, uh, that he is incredibly loving. Um, we, we, we learn this vibrantly when, when we, we have an experience much like uh, those, those three Hebrew boys that would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I'm going to throw you in that furnace. And they said... You're going to have to go ahead because we're not going to worship you. We're going to worship God. They do it. They throw them in there. This furnace is so hot. The guys that throw them in end up dying. They throw in three, and and people are looking from afar off, and they're like, "Hold on, man! I see a fourth in there." And here's here's where you gotta you gotta let analogy do what it does. God said He is like a silversmith, and so to some degree, He is guiding that process of you being purified, but also. He's, he's, he is that fourth man in the furnace. When you're going through that difficulty, here, here's what we need to understand about our God He's with us. He's either hovering right over that thing, making sure everything's okay, or, or sometimes He'll jump right down in there with you and just hold you through it. Either way, that's the kind of God that we serve. He's not far off. He didn't just lob a trial your way and I'm going to come back and check on you next week. Hope you make it, right? None of that his proximity, his promise to be faithful, to be with you, to be a part of the process. These should be comforts to us. These should be things that we can cling to in the midst of trial and difficulty. Um, He's really gracious because he's even promised to be with us and to help us and to grant us repentance uh, and give us grace when we're suffering as a result of dumb things we did or said, right? So he's even even better than what we're saying right here because it's not just when... Uh, fiery trials are, are a part of the process of you growing. That, that He's there and promises to be with you. But even when we succumb to temptation, uh, give in to the deceptions of the enemy, and we do things that cause difficulty in our own lives, uh, He's with us in those. He's there, granting grace and repentance, helping us, pulling us up out of the mud that we oftentimes get ourselves into. And so, what a good and gracious God! What a faithful Father! He's been really good to us. Verse 18. It says, and if if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? This is a this is a, a loose quote from Proverbs here that Peter gives us. And uh, what, what he's saying, if, if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, it's that's not saying that you could easily interpret that in the line and flow of thought as a commendation of workspace based righteousness, that somebody's going to have to just keep on working, and anybody that makes it barely makes it. That's, that's definitely not what he's saying. That would disagree with all of the rest of what the Bible says, so you got to kind of use that to help you interpret. What he's saying here is uh, that it, it is not without great effort that every single one of us has been saved. The key is it's not our effort. <laughs> great effort was exerted. There was a great price paid. Uh, Thankfully, Jesus paid it because no matter how hard we would have ever worked, we couldn't have got there. We never had enough coin in our bag to pay the price. Jesus had to pay it with his blood. Silver and gold wasn't good enough. You remember when Peter said that a few chapters ago? Multiple times. Wouldn't have got the job done. It had to be the perfect, precious blood of Christ, and so we're thankful for that. Uh, But what what he's pointing to here, what should this cause us to think about? If it's difficult that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? I think in the, in the flow of thought here, this, this is part of what we should be brought to and understanding. And he's, you know, he's talking about judgment starting with the house of God. He's talking about what's the, the hope that there is in the midst of trials. Um, and he's encouraging us in those things. This is, this is, I think, a faithful principle to draw out of what he's saying here. The truth is this is the worst it will ever be for the Christian. We have an eternal hope. We experience God's grace and mercy and and the potential for a full, joy-filled, beautiful life here, but it is not without difficulty. That has been made clear. So God has been gracious now, but also we need to realize with all of the gracious ways that God has blessed us and been good to us in, in this present age, for us, those of us that are going to spend eternity with God, this is as bad as it ever gets. But the truth is also, this is the best it will ever be for the unbeliever. All of the brokenness, all of the difficulty, and for most of them, they're lacking the good things that come from a relationship with God. So they're stumbling their way through this thing, blind and just reaching for whatever they can to try to kind of placate the pain, um, this is as bad as it will ever be for those that follow Christ. This is the best it will ever be. Think about that. Think about this last week, friends. This is the best they'll ever get for those that don't come to follow Christ. Who, what does it say? Of the godless man and the sinner. What's the implication of that idea? That, that's not a new idea. You've probably heard that before. If you haven't, it's definitely been said before that this is the worst it'll ever be for those that trust Jesus. This is the best it'll ever be for those that don't. But many times when that's said, it's said with an air of superiority. It's said with kind of a condescending attitude that, um, you know, y- you better just get it together or this is the best it'll ever be for you. It's kind of, I'm, I'm in the good club and you're not. And, and it, there's, there's, Oftentimes it's said with that kind of sinful swagger to it. The truth is, this reality is is, is right. It, it, the statement is true, but what should, it, what should be the practical cause? Um, what, what should it lead us to? And what it should do is lead us to love-motivated evangelism and not superiority-motivated separation. So for some people, they think about this idea that there are the godless, there are those that would even say they hate God, there are those that have uh, cursed him and cursed us that belong to him, and they, they set themselves as enemies of those that would say they believe. What, what do we do with that? What do we do with the persecutor? What do we do with the person that makes life harder because you're a follower of Jesus? Where does your heart and mind go? Do you think in a vengeful kind of sadistic way you're going to get yours? Do you you revel in the fact that God will exact vengeance upon them if they do not repent? That his wrath will be poured out on them fully? what, what What does that thought do in your heart and mind? Because God has made clear what his heart is about it. He is perfectly just, and so he will punish every sinner that does not, by faith, receive redemption and reconciliation. He has to because he's just. But he's also made very clear that he wishes and wills that none would perish. That's First Peter told us that, right? That he is not slow as some count slowness, but he's, he's patient, willing that none should perish. And so our heart should be like God's heart about it. And so that simple fact that, yes, this is as bad as it ever gets for us, but as good as it ever gets for those that don't believe, that should give us an extra layer of motivation to do whatever we can to help more people believe. Do you need the Holy Spirit's help in your daily life, like on the minute-to-minute basis? Yeah, because if I'm going to think about my persecutors like that with compassion, if I'm going to look at them like Jesus looked at the ones that just gambled for his clothes after they nailed him to a cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you understand what that means? Jesus' heart towards the, the people that just drove nails through the most sensitive nerve centers of his body, his reaction to them was compassion. Are you going to need the Holy Spirit's help for that to be your reaction when someone comes at you sideways? I am. I'm I'm going to need the Holy Spirit, and they're going to probably bring some angels, and we're going to have to have a powwow because that's not my natural inclination. My, My natural inclination is sin, man, to be just like nature, red in tooth and claw. You hurt me, I hurt you. This is easy. It's not right. It's not the way of the Master. When we read, What Will Become of the Godless Man and the Sinner?, we don't stand as the righteous looking down upon them in judgment. We continue to seek God for the wisdom to know how we can step into where they're at and offer them the hope of Christ. That's the reaction. Compassion and love for the sinner. We have to remember that brokenness is the root cause of all sin, deception. This belief that they're trying to be free, they're trying to get to that thing they were really made for, and they've just been lied to so many different ways about the path to that. We we can't take personal assaults as a result of our faith. Uh, we can't take that personally. We have to submit that to the Father and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. That we would love every single person that would curse God or curse us because we belong to him. It's the only right response. Verse 19 says, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, again, I said this earlier, I'm going to steal my own line, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God. If somebody ever tries to teach you that if you surrender to Jesus, then that means he only wants you to ever be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And if you have enough faith, that's what will happen. I want you to take this verse and load it in your bazooka and blow that cruise ship out of the water because it's a big boat of lies. All right? That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Sometimes, by the will of God, we will suffer. But it's for all the reasons we talked about. It's for our purification, not for our punishment. It's because he's doing something with us. He's a silversmith. He's forming us into something beautiful and useful. I'm thankful for that. So what do we do? Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Uh, Some of your translations might say commit instead of "entrust." That word there had a very specific meaning. it was like uh, in ancient times, somebody would i don't think anybody does this anymore i don 't know we just don't trust each other, but if somebody had to go do something where they couldn't carry their family's wealth, which would like many times it would be in coins or something, they would entrust or commit that bag or chest of money to a friend to keep it and there was a very strict code of honor in in that time that all of your integrity was kind of tied to whether or not you returned that thing back to that person the way that they gave it to you. So it was a very deep sense of trust um, in this idea of, of entrusting. And so that's, that's the point being made here. Entrust your soul to the faithful creator in doing what is right. So what he's saying? He's saying, friend, don't worry in well-doing. Keep going. Don't give up. Trust God by his spirit to help you. Trust the creator. He uses that word so specifically and purposefully right there. Think about what he's doing. He's saying, you're going to be in the middle of difficulties and you're going to want to give up. You're going to want to quit. You're going to want to just run the other way. But remember, remember you're entrusting your souls to the Creator, he's calling your attention back to the fact that this is not some lesser god, this is not some totem deity, this is not something we made up. This is the god who spoke and created everything. This is the god who made a decision out of love before the foundations of the earth to create us, knowing we would rebel, and then had a plan in place, sending his very own son to die upon the cross that we could be redeemed and saved. It's that creator, it's that god, he is good, and you can trust him. So, keep fighting. Keep going, and don't ever give up. That's the point of the chapter, and it's really the point of the book. He's got some end stuff he's going to give us in chapter 5. It's going to uh, specifically speak to church leadership, and there's some other tidbits and good things in here we're going to see, but he gave us four solid chapters, the greatest portion of this letter, for that premise, dear friend. Life's going to be hard at times. There's going to be various reasons why that happens. But your Creator is powerful and good and loving and he can be trusted. And he's not a creator that is just those things. He's a God that absolutely understands what it's like to struggle like you. That's why every single time he keeps pointing it back. Let me just read this to you one more time. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. Our King suffered, friends. He suffered harder, longer, and more. Our God has suffered as the result of sin, more than we could ever possibly fathom. He understands what, it, what the pain of sin is. He understands everything that we're going through. And he's saying to us, you can make it. I'm going to help you. Trust me. Amen. May we be a people who are never surprised by trials, but instead embrace them by faith. May we be a people who submit joyfully to the refining process that God has promised to work in each of us. And may we be a people who never weary in well-doing, but trust our perfect and faithful creator for our good and his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for these verses. We thank you for the repetitive pattern of 1 Peter. Thank you that this guy that you trained, you hand-selected and taught him how to be a leader among your people, taught him how to be at the helm of, of the beginning of the early church. This is what he emphasized. So God, help us to understand it's important. Help us to understand that we desperately need your spirit to obey any of this, even partially. We are not capable of doing any of this without your help. So we just we acknowledge our deficiency and our inadequacy, and we say thank you that you've promised to fill those in to help us, <laughs> to give us what we need that we lack. Lord, please help us for this not to just be an academic exercise. Lord, this is difficult. These are hard principles. To be in the middle of the furnace, to feel the heat, to... S- to fight against struggle, to feel the pressure of trial and difficulty, and yet rejoice. Lord, we see the call. You've made it very clear. If we were to suffer and share in the sufferings of Christ, we're to rejoice and exalt and be thankful. I thank you, Lord, for what it speaks to us, that when we suffer for the name of Christ, there's a reassurance every single time that we belong to you. Thank you that when we suffer for your name, we know that we're yours and in that simple fact, we can rejoice. Thank you for grace and mercy. Thank you for the provision and power of your spirit. Thank you that you're a good father, that you don't leave us like we are, but that you put us in that crucible and you apply heat and you're forming and shaping and you're removing all the things that would cause us pain and would cause destruction. We trust you. We submit to the process, Lord. We say, we say, Please continue to refine us. We will not run. And we will not hide. We will submit joyfully to all that you're doing. May you be glorified in this. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.